0: I'm Brandon Hull, and it's time for Freelance to Founder.
1: You know, one of the big challenges that all budding entrepreneurs have to face is when is that moment when you, you know, jump out of the nest and spread your wings and see if this is going to work. And I get it. It's tough. And I was fortunate in a way where I kind of got kicked out of the nest. Like I had to either do it or go find a different job.
0: That was John Sowash, and this, again, is Freelance to Founder, a podcast where I talk to entrepreneurs like him. They're service providers, or marketing agency owners, or online course builders, or bloggers, product creators, software developers, even other podcasters. And what makes my guests unique, like Mr. Sowash, is that they typically started these pursuits as freelance gigs on the side, sometimes with no idea how they'd build them but they ultimately did take on a whole new life and scaled far beyond their expectations, even their own dreams, and therefore much bigger than themselves. Ready to go really niche? I met John a couple years ago. We enjoyed some pokey. Well, I should say he enjoyed some pokey. I choked it down, but politely kept my cool so I didn't embarrass myself at a little restaurant in Boise, Idaho. And John's story is the entrepreneur's story through... And through a teacher for years barely making it financially he started to do a little consulting on the side particularly in the world of technology in the classroom then he did a little more and a little more until finally well life kind of presented him a crossroads keep teaching and making a little on the side with the minimal amount of time that you have or go big he went big as they say John's making far, far more than he ever did as a teacher, but without flaming that former life. It's still an important part to him. He works with school districts and individual teachers on personal and professional development, especially as it relates to technology. So in this episode, you're going to get to know John really well. His full personality, his backstory, his why. You're gonna find out how he made his transition and why he made his transition from teacher to teacher of teachers. You're gonna learn about how he grew his business in the first 90 days, what he did right, what he did wrong. You're gonna learn how he's starting to digitize his business from traditional consultant to online business builder. And you're gonna find out what he has in store for himself over the coming years. You're gonna go on this journey with him side by side as an entrepreneur learning from an entrepreneur. This isn't an episode just for teachers who want to learn how to pivot from being a classroom teacher to being an online business builder. This is a story for entrepreneurs with a specialty, with an expertise, who want to get outside of the box and learn and work for themselves. All right, with that, let's get to my interview with John Sowash, who was nestled in his comfortable home office in Howell, Michigan, for our conversation.
2: and restrictions apply. Mr. John Sowash, thank you so much for joining me
1: today. Brandon, it's great. I listen to your show uh, all the time. I'm honored to be here.
0: You're just saying that. You're just saying that.
1: You're one of the uh, yeah 35 podcasts I uh, I flip through. <laughs> I drive I drive a lot, so I have a lot of time to listen to podcasts.
0: <laughs> You're like I, if I, if I'm going to be filled with with something in my brain during this drive, it might as well be Brandon Holes uh sultry uh voice and, Absolutely. You have and a good Lizzie radio voice. On. You do. Oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> well, th- hey, this show isn't about my voice. This is about you. This is about you. <laughs> this is uh this is this will be a ton of fun because um what listeners don't know is that you and I have known each other for I don't know, a year or so now, a little over that. Uh we met also at the Convert Kit Craft and Commerce um event where I met other wonderful entrepreneurs as well, some of which we've actually have also had on this show in the past. And the stories have always been tremendous of why they've gone there and what they've accomplished and so forth. But um, yours is uh, particularly interesting because you come from a background that is always under the microscope from a numbers standpoint. And so I, I can't wait to talk about that in, uh, in a lot of detail, how you know your journey has gone from being a teacher for years and what you're doing right now. So maybe you can bring everybody who doesn't know you up to speed a little bit on a description of what your business is about today and the different ways that you make money with that business.
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, hi, everybody. My name is John Sawash, and I am a teacher, a father, uh, I have five kids, um, entrepreneur, and a content creator. Um uh, one of the questions I dread more than any other is, what do you do? Because it's tough to answer that question. Um, many, many different things, but I really always comes back to, I am a teacher. Um, when I talk, you know, think about what I love doing most, it's teaching people um, how to do things, learn things. Um, that's, that's my passion. And that's taken on a lot of forms, um, like I said, Brandon, I started as a, uh, a high school teacher, um, middle and high school, taught uh, I actually it was making a list. I've taught at schools around the world. I've taught in Detroit public schools. I live in the Midwest, I'm from Michigan. I've taught in Detroit Public schools, suburbs of Detroit. Um, I've taught in Romania, the Philippines, Kosovo. Uh, I've seen a lot of different uh, classroom settings teachers uh, you know adult learners uh, middle school high school a little bit of elementary um, if you're an elementary teacher p- God bless you I did like one day as a substitute elementary teacher and I was like I'm out I'm done <laughs> that's my past um, over time that um, unexpectedly um, evolved from being a traditional teacher to being a teacher of teachers and so now I do professional development training. That's in person, online uh, workshops. I have written a book, YouTube channel, podcast, blogging. I create content uh, for an education audience. Much of it is free, and uh, some of it is paid. Um, You know, I make most of my money probably my uh, my full time. Uh, My salary is probably. Roughly 60% um, comes from uh, consulting services. So a school district will hire me to come in and do technology training, consulting for the district, Um, teacher workshops, uh, technical consulting. And then the other 40% is split in a lot of different ways. Um, So I wrote a book called The Chromebook Classroom. Um, I really focus in on uh, technology and the use of technology, specifically Google-based tools, Chromebooks, Google Drive, Google Classroom, things like that. Hopefully, we'll get into a topic of niche, uh, niching down. I'd love to chat about that. Um, so, they'll hire me for that, but uh, wrote a book, make uh, some money from that, um, do online courses, which is a relatively new thing. Um, I don't make a ton on that, but uh, it's an area that's growing. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I run a conference as well. So a lot of little things here and there, but ultimately they all, uh, try to help teachers, uh, be, be better in the classroom. So where,
0: where you're, where you're not unique, don't take that as a, as a jab, I'm going to go someplace with this, but <laughs> where you're not unique is that as you branched out on your own and as time has gone by with you owning your own business, the, the revenue streams have been become numerous. Like you have to rely on numerous, uh, channels to be able to to, uh, to continue to grow and that sort of thing. So that, that's not necessarily unique, although the way you've gone about it, that story is always unique. Um, I think what's, what's fascinating, though, is that you started off in the classroom and clearly had some sort of aha or breakthrough moment or uh, a crossroads moment in your life as an educator where you felt like this isn't the path I want to take any longer. And before I turn that into a question, I could even get hear you getting ready to answer the question because there was no question yet. <laughs> but the, the fact that you're still in the classroom sort of underlines your passion for the profession and your desire to ensure that you're doing all you can to, to be a part of that profession, but you're not in the profession anymore. So if we go back in time, when did it become apparent to you that teaching wasn't what you should do anymore as much as you loved it? and you needed to take a look at a different path.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And now that I have my own kids, you know, there's some of this as well. Like there's some professions that you're almost kind of pushed into. And so, you know, my mother was a teacher, my grandmother was a teacher, my grandfather's a teacher. Like I come from a line of teachers and you know, if you enjoy explaining things and teaching people, it's like, "Oh, you should be a teacher." Like it's just like, "Oh, that's what you do." Well, the internet has Opened an opportunity where anybody can be a teacher, um, and I guess that's really you know the big crossroads for me is like I enjoy teaching things. I don't necessarily enjoy the infrastructure of public education. Now, honestly, if you ask pretty much any teacher in the world, they're probably like, "Yeah, no, I don't like you know grading papers and taking attendance and discipline referrals and all of that um, as well." So. I am very fortunate, and I think a lot of your guests would um, agree with this in that I just so happened to kind of get into this when the internet went from a cute little thing to like, oh, wow, this thing has legs. This is not a fad. And because we were early movers... We had some opportunity, um, which is uh, which is wonderful. So it was the combination of I love to teach, and oh, and there's this thing called the internet that allows me to connect directly with an audience that really has made what I do now possible.
0: Well, and there was a period of time, as I recall, in your teaching, uh, in your teaching life, that towards the tail end of it, if not the very end of it, you were specifically responsible for online learning. Um, so this notion of bringing technology into the classroom or leveraging technology became a central focus of your teaching efforts. Am I right about
1: that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was um, incorporating more and more technology into my own classroom. I mean, you know, those everyone listening went to school. And my guess is that your teacher had this one specific lesson that they would teach each semester that was the technology lesson. You know, they would like march everybody down to the computer lab and they would do technology and they would cross it off the list and they move on. Well, that was the norm. And then all of a sudden, when the iPad came out, especially, now we're like handing an iPad to every single kid. And it goes from this thing you do occasionally to every day, every moment, it is the new textbook.
0: You're living in the book, right? And the book is that that screen.
1: Well, what happened is that like in the iPad really is the the big moment here. You know, school districts said, hey, this is an affordable technology we can put in the hands of every student. And they did. But they forgot to tell the teachers what to do with it. So you have a whole bunch of teachers who are like, I have one lesson that leverages technology. What in the world am I going to do with this thing the other 179 days in the school year? And that's when I began teaching. I just so happened to be that new teacher. So my problem was I had no lessons. Like I had nothing. And so for me, it was like, well, I got to do something, so I guess I'm going to make it so that I can use the technology. And I just began sharing and talking, and you know, um, you know, giving out my ideas, blogging, speaking at conferences, just for fun. I didn't mind make money. It was no idea you could even could make money, and that ultimately resulted in me becoming the director of online learning uh, for a new online school where literally everything is done online. Um, and uh, from there, moving into a consulting. Uh, uh, roll.
0: i can't let what just came out of john's mouth go without a highlighter scribbled over it and underlined underneath it a circle around it doors of opportunity open all the time do you bust through them or do you pass by them and let those opportunities open up for other people great great moment from john it sounds like your natural um I don't know, your natural inclination to embrace technology in the classroom um, was combined with the needs of the school to have a, a person that headed that up, so to speak. So you're you're talking about doing it for fun, doing it maybe even for free. Um, so it's almost like you were freelancing without it being something that you were making money for doing. For real. <laughs> right? And then, um, so this was 2000, what? When was that? When were we talking?
1: Um, This is probably 2010 through 2015, uh, thereabouts. Okay. um, Yeah.
0: All right. And do you remember the time when you felt like, you know what? I got to make a change. I'm feeling drawn to do this full time. Was there a transition period? What was that crossroads moment like?
1: A lot of your guests have had uh, similar experiences, so <clears throat> I was doing some consulting work on the t- on the side, as well as my full time teaching job, um, and that got to a point where I was either going to have to start turning down opportunities, or I was going to get fired from my teaching job for not doing my work. So, and I'm very committed to you know my actual classroom, so I you know was turning things down. Um, there was a major political upheaval at my school, school board, superintendent, they had a major cleaning house. I wasn't really involved in it other than, you know, because the administration changed, a lot of the positions, you know, were were shifted around as well. And so my position was being kind of um, eliminated and recombined. And so at that point, I had an opportunity, either I would have to go back to the classroom, you know, uh, kind of make a, a lateral move or jump out on my own. So, you know, one of the big challenges that all budding entrepreneurs have to face is when is that moment when you, you know, jump out of the nest and spread your wings and see if this is going to work. And I get it. It's tough. And I was fortunate in a way where I kind of got kicked out of the nest. Like I had to either do it or go find a different job. And I wasn't impressed with the job market, so I said, to "My wife, should we try this?" And I said, "Sure." So we we gave it a shot, and uh, it's been uh, what seven years. So th- that I think
0: what's amazing to me is it's it's no it's no secret in the U.S. anyway that teacher salaries are always a sensitive subject. Um, how much teachers make, how much it, it compares to how it, how it d- disproportionately. Um, reflects the value provided and the responsibilities, uh, let alone the additional costs that they are co- uh, that they have to bear to to do their work. How did you feel comfortable making that change from teacher to entrepreneur? Because entrepreneurs in the early going, they're just not going to be. You know that income is not consistent, and it's certainly not great. But you weren't coming from a place. But that that's, you were the, making that's the that's the great thing
1: about being a teacher because replacing your salary is not difficult. <laughs> I mean, if 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 you're a teacher out there, my starting salary as a teacher out of college was twenty eight thousand dollars a year. That was my starting salary. Now I don't live in California, so cost of living is definitely lower. I mean, it's you know Midwest is is better, but man, I mean, you can't hardly buy groceries and pay rent for twenty eight k. I mean, that was ridiculous. So that was a blessing in disguise. Cause like looking out at that time, I was probably making more closer to 35 at that time. I mean, looking out, being able to say, man, 35,000. I mean, that's not that high a bar to hit. I mean, <laughs> this not, that's not bad. So, um, you know, it, it, it was a little easier at the time and the opportunity, like when you're in education, one of the biggest challenges, and this was very frustrating to me. It does not matter, and this is a huge problem with education, it does not matter if you are the best teacher or the worst teacher. Your pay is based largely on experience. If you just suck it up and are a bad teacher for long enough, you work your way to the top of the salary. Did that
0: frustrate you as a teacher who had been around for several years too?
1: Absolutely. Like I I am an entrepreneur at my core. I mean, I was selling lemonade and, you know, worms to fishermen and candy bars as a kid. I didn't realize I was an entrepreneur, but I am. So the idea that my salary or my potential is capped by arbitrary rules was so frustrating to me and if you want to go above that then you have to go into administration but even then you know admins make a certain amount and you're done and i really i am a very motivated person by opportunity like if i know that i have unlimited opportunity i will step into that um, much more so than uh you know saying oh well you know we have a guaranteed salary of x but you know that's it i i can't stand that
0: So the wheels had always been kind of turning in your head that maybe you should do some things on the side because of financial reasons, but also because of that entrepreneurial bug.
1: Oh my goodness, Brandon. If we had a couple hours, I could tell you about all the different businesses that I've started, Uh, you know, most of which are, you know, horrible failures in, you know, or just not good businesses, but, you know, I like such as go. Oh, on, uh, yeah. so I mean, selling worms as a kid, uh, candy bars and soda, you know, as a teenager, um, I would sell textbooks in college, um, as a, um, after we got married, this is a crazy one, so I live in the Midwest, so um, uh, I did a nuisance animal trapping. If you had raccoons, squirrels, skunks, possums, I would trap them and take them away. People would pay me 100 bucks to catch a raccoon. It's like the easiest thing ever. Cat food in a cage, and you get 50 bucks. It's super easy. Um, this is a sad one, so... As a teacher with my salary, I mean, we were scraping in. So at the end of the school year, all the teachers clean out their classrooms, you know, to throw away old textbooks and just junk. I would go through the piles of garbage that they would set in the hallway. I would pick out old textbooks like teachers would get like sample textbooks from the companies and I would sell those on half dot com and make money on them. So I found some old ones that I would sell for, you know, twenty five fifty a hundred bucks a pop. I mean, it was like free money that was going in the trash can. Um, I mean, those are just a just a few uh, businesses I I did. Nowadays
0: they call that hustling or you know, you're Got you're, you're living the grind you're grinding and I, that sort of thing and I, all those buzzwords.
1: I've done garage sailing, retail arbitrage, eBay. I've I've done it all.
0: Goodness gracious. So this Gary V uh, would be proud. <laughs> Of course, as he curls up on the floor of an airport uh, and having a videographer taking photos of him uh, or a photographer. So so obviously, this this intersection of entrepreneurial bug plus the needs, the financial needs are there causing you to feel like it's time to go out on your own. And, and uh, the career situation, the career outlook also sort of, I don't want to say forced it upon you, but gave you a decision point to be made obviously right Yeah
1: it did um you know another i guess two things that really motivate/frustrate me one are you know arbitrary caps on salary and opportunity and the other thing is just time education is such a time focused business like you have to show up at this time you cannot leave before this time and then even then you're expected to do lesson planning and grading afterwards so you cannot be more efficient as a teacher. Like you can't be like, hey man, we taught, you know, I taught all my kids everything they needed to know and it only took 20 minutes. So we're done. Like it doesn't, you can't do that. Um, And so not having control over my time with a young family, with, you know, a wife and, you know, first two, three, you know, up to five kids, you know, that was challenging um, to, uh, to coordinate. So I was looking for something where greater salary opportunity as well as greater flexibility in terms of my time.
2: You know, working from home is mostly great, but there are some days when I realize I haven't left my house or even my chair like all day. Have you been there? Getting outside to exercise or making a trip to the gym are just harder now that my office is just a flight of stairs away. If you're stuck in the same rut as me, then you should try HYDRO. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W. With the Hydro rower and 20 minutes a day, getting a full body workout is so much easier. Hydro can work up to 86% of your muscles in just 20 minutes for an insane, effective home workout. That's because Hydro, All right, so this is uh, now pushing what 2012 in that
0: range, somewhere in there, Mm -hmm. that Soash Ventures emerges (laughs) and becomes a thing.
1: Pretty much, yeah. I think I incorporated it. It sounds uh, so sexy. Yep,
0: 2011.
1: Nope. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I just needed something just for kind of tax purposes. So, you know, my company is So Watch Ventures LLC, but that is completely irrelevant. Like when you hire me, you hire me, not my company. So I am a one man solopreneur. People know me as the person, I'm, I don't market my company. Um, it's me.
0: What was the. And what was what? Do you remember what time of year it was that you started this your business? I have a, there's a reason I'm asking that question. But when was it? It
1: was probably in the fall. Um, I every once in a while look at my uh, thing from the IRS with my you know tax ID number on it. It was 2011 in the fall. Um, you know schools were starting to send me money uh, for consulting. And let me just stop you right here. If anyone is going to you know work with school districts, it is the most abysmal system in terms of getting paid you have ever dealt with. Purchase orders and board approvals, it's insane the amount of paperwork it takes to actually get a check. And so schools are like- <laughs> And yet you embrace it, but yeah. we'll, we'll, talk, yeah. we'll talk about that. So I, yeah, it's like, oh, they got to send me money. I don't even know what they're talking about. I guess I need a W-9. Okay, let's figure out what that is. So I figured it out. Uh, here we are.
0: All right. So your first, uh, let's say your first 90 days on the job- uh, as the CEO and president and uh, chief operating officer and um, chief financial officer and all of that for the one-man business of Soash Ventures, uh, what did you do those first 90 days? You got to go, go from doing a little bit of consulting with some school districts to rapidly finding a lot of school districts. And not only that, but you're doing it when a school year has started. And therefore, I assume the budgets have already been set. So... What, talk to us, talk to us about what those first 90 days went. What did you do to find clients?
1: So, I mean, the first thing, you know, I had been um two things that I I do that still today are probably the most important things for opportunity is speaking at conferences and blogging. I started a blog uh, right after I began teaching just for a personal journal and that continues today, electriceducator.com is I still write on it. Um It's still brings people in. um, And then speaking at conferences, you know, if you hear me speak, you're more inclined to hire me as a speaker. Like no one wants to hire someone they've never seen. So um, I do those even today. Um, So I, you know, had three opportunities and then six the next year, um, you know, this was all while I was teaching. Um, And then uh, when I decided to go uh, full-time and uh, become a full-time freelancer, I had one opportunity, a friend of mine, very um, great educator. Um, named Rushton Hurley out of California. Um, He had an opportunity and invited me to be there. Uh, It was a three-week trip to the Philippines um, to do technology training uh, for the teachers in the Philippines funded by the Filipino government. Um, And again, back to my teacher salary, that one opportunity, I think I got paid 10K for that. That was a third of my annual salary as a teacher. So I knew with that in the bank that I had three months to figure out the next month. And uh, that was enough to make the jump. So, what was the nature of the offerings? Uh,
0: you know, we talk about niching your business, mm-hmm. niching down. That's a big phrase. Yep. What was the niche that you found yourself in as you launched this new business? Who were you trying to serve, and what were you trying to offer that was different than maybe some other speaker, or educator, or trainer? Of teachers.
1: So early on, it was just educational technology. So I was a person who could provide practical insights to how a teacher can use technology to enhance the classroom. Design lessons were that were enhanced by technology. Over time, that has gotten more and more focused. So I went from Educational technology in very general sense to really only supporting um, Google apps for education G suite for education and today, I am the Chromebook guy, so I pretty much only work with and support schools that use Chromebooks in the classroom I don't do ipads pcs right. Mac just Chromebooks
0: that's the story today when you were in the earlier phases good you know a good six or seven years ago um that sort of technology being widespread deployed in a widespread manner maybe wasn't as common so correct uh, how did you decide what you wanted to teach and what you didn't want to teach because of the opportunity versus your interest level you know what I mean like if you're if you're sharp when it comes to how to leverage technology in the classroom that's one thing but if schools as a general rule are not deploying it in some sort of mass uh, mass distribution sort of manner. Um, how did you find that little sweet spot between what you taught and what the reality was for a teacher to be able to implement?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, early on, it was pretty easy because only the schools that had the infrastructure in place would reach out to me. You know, if I went and spoke at a conference on 10 ways to use technology in the classroom, it was either the schools that were currently doing it, doing it, or were investigating how they were going to put that in place. That would um, would come, and I was one of the few people doing it in the country, so um, there weren't that many people to choose from. Over time, that's changed, and uh, which is you know forced me to really focus uh, focus in
0: the, the the offering besides speaking engagements and uh, consulting. What was, how, how would you describe the full suite of offerings that you had that first, uh, I don't want to say just stick with the 90 days, but the first year, how did you decide what was the right package of offerings to provide this audience that is very narrow in scope, right? Because it's one thing to talk to all school districts, another one is to, another thing to talk to the ones who are embracing this mindset from a financial standpoint so, how did you decide this is my product suite or my service suite?
1: Yeah, I mean, it wasn't very scientific, I'll tell you that. I mean, basically, I put myself out there as I do technology training for schools, and then it was up to, you know, the school district would contact me, and we'd figure it out. I was like, oh, what do you use? What devices do you have? What tools do you use? And I would, I would literally come up with a custom workshop or um, seminar for them.
0: Traditional consulting, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, right? Yep. Okay. And was there a time when during that first year when the light switch flipped and you uh that's that's a bad analogy there, but um when the when the when the light switched <laughs> the light went out <laughs> there you go that, that told you that maybe instead of being physically involved in training and consulting people, that you could turn this into a digital business as well, um, where you've got assets that are available. Did that happen during the first year or did that take a little bit of time? No,
1: that's been a, a very recent development, probably in the last um five years um, generally, and really last three years specifically when I've got into um, the online courses and, and digital content. Um, yeah. I mean, education is a very interesting space um, and in, there's we go in as deep as you want, but you know, schools have budgets and that budget comes from state and federal sources. Most of that money is earmarked. It has to be spent for a certain thing. Every school district has a budget for professional development. They are required to spend it. It's not like a business where if you don't spend it, you get to keep it and take it home. Like there is no benefit to them not spending it. Um, That is good in a sense for me because there are schools that just they have to do it. It's a requirement. Um, and, um, you know, it's sad in some senses, cause I have worked with a lot of districts that that money is a total waste. Like they don't have a plan. They're not using it strategically, which is disappointing. And that's where a lot of criticism comes in education. But, you know, for me as an educator, once you connect with a school district that wants what I offer, it's really not terribly hard to make the sale because, they have the money. like the money is allocated on an annual basis. Um, we just have to come up with the the date, the time, uh, you know the topics,
0: yeah. so how did that first year go?
1: It was good. Um surprisingly. Um, I had a lot of uh, friends who are entrepreneurs in different industries, and they all encouraged me to take the jump. I mean, it was uh, nerve wracking for sure. but uh, you know like I said, um we weren't we weren't shooting for the stars initially. I mean, uh, it was a pretty low bar that we were trying to trying to exceed.
0: No, but even even on the financial side, uh, even financials alone aside, um, you gave up benefits, you gave up security, you gave up certainty of what your schedule would be like. Uh, you gave up all of that in the pursuit of something that you felt like would be more lucrative for sure, but definitely more control and more security in the long term, more stable in the long term, even if it didn't seem that way the first six months mm-hmm. to a
1: year. Yeah, and this is something uh, I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm really surprised at how attached people get to their jobs, like the security, the benefits, the whatnot, like you can get all of that stuff. Like, it's not like you can't go out and get insurance. I, it's very easy. Um, It's everybody works for themselves. Whether you have an actual nine to five job or not, you work for yourself. You have to justify your value. You have to be more valuable to your company than what they are paying you. That is what a job is. And that transaction is what makes society work. I love the idea of taking that to the extreme where it actually I am actually in control um, and providing that value and getting that monetary uh, return. So um, for me, it was a wonderful transition. I finally felt the f- you know free, like I had full control um, to do what I felt was best.
0: You felt good, but did you feel secure from a long-term perspective? Did you feel like you this is going to work, no ifs, ands, or buts about it? Or did you have moments during that first year where you felt like, I got to change gears or I might need a plan B or I need to I need to have an, another source of revenue that has nothing to do with teaching. How did it really go from a stress standpoint?
1: All right, now we get to have some real talk because anybody who is an entrepreneur and and tells you that they feel secure is lying. Brandon, everything you just say, I think about every single day. <laughs> there is no security. Um you know every every year as a consultant I have this this fear that oh that was it that was the la- that was peak John Sowash I'm done I'm never going to get hired again and every year it seems to work but y- that has never changed the only thing that has changed is I have built up my internal emotional muscles to fully embrace that uncertainty Um, like I understand that I will always feel that way and I face that uncertainty and we move forward. I mean, any single person could lose their job tomorrow. Like you could just walk in your office and be fired. I mean, probably won't happen, but I mean, none of us has hundred percent certainty as an entrepreneur. I have a little more uncertainty than most. And you just have to learn like it never goes away. Having
0: said that, has your definition of what risk means evolved over these five to seven years
1: it's gotten a lot more challenging you know at the time you know our lifestyle you know was much lower we had fewer kids I didn't have kids who were gonna be going to college in the next ten years you know um, so it's definitely gotten a lot more challenging um, you know we started pretty low and so it was easy to, to go up but uh, yeah, the pressure's a lot higher now. I mean, that's just what it means to be an adult and you, just, you gotta face it. So when you, when you think about what you should
0: do with the business do you view it with that lens of risk or do you view it with the lens solely of opportunity and you need to jump on opportunities that open more doors? It's
1: definitely more strategic now. Um, you know, at the time I didn't have anything and so I was willing to take any risk because it was, it was zero wasn't that far, so. Nowhere to go but up. Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely now I'm doing things a lot more strategically. I feel that I've grown tremendously as an actual business owner in the last decade. I was not a, a true business owner at the time, um, you know, doing things strategically. Um, but you know, my online courses, my books, where I speak, you know, my marketing, my email list, like all of that is much more strategic. You know, I have a much bigger funnel to use the, you know, the marketing terms now and, you know, a goal that I try to you know, direct uh, people through. Um, uh, so it's, it's definitely more strategic now. So while we may have um, a smaller number
0: of people who are or have been teachers and are making the transition to entrepreneurs, we do have plenty of people who are going from a discipline or a specialist role or expertise in a certain area and want to turn that into an entrepreneurial pursuit, a business. Maybe they're starting with it right now on the side, or maybe they've actually gone full time and they're sorting through all of the things that they need to become sufficiently proficient in. Um, but let's talk about that on the business side for just a little bit. You know, we, we talked about what you did the first 90 days, um, and how the first year went, but I guess in a broad sense, I'm curious how, how you went about the process of finding clients, um, building credibility and trust with them and getting them to part ways with money. Uh, that is a discipline that doesn't matter what your background is. You're going to have to be good at that in, uh, whatever pursuit, if you're starting an online business or even a consulting business. So, one, question one, two-part question here. Question one, how did you become proficient in the marketing and sales aspect of the business? Obviously, you had some sales skills before we talked about. That's question one. Question two is, how did you apply that? What did you do as each year, every maybe even six months? You know, six months would go by, a year would go by. How did you refine what you did to attract an audience and convert them into clients. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm still working on it. It's certainly not something I've mastered. Um, there's a couple of general principles that my wife and I have kind of learned and try to up- subscribe to as uh, as much as possible. Um, again, this is John Soash's rules of business, which only may only apply to me. I don't know. <laughs> um, number one and thing that we've learned is that um, small money is hard. So, you know, trying to make a living when you're selling a 20, 25, $50 product is difficult. You got to have a lot of customers. And like you said, that transaction of converting someone to get someone to give you money is hard. It doesn't matter how many zeros at the end of it. It's hard. And so kind of the, the foundation of my business has always been larger ticket engagements like a school district will pay me, you know, two to five thousand dollars for a, a workshop or some kind of a, a seminar. Like that is one customer contact point. There's a lot of work there, but the the financial revenue for that is sustainable.
0: Now you know what's funny about that, by the way, before you even go any further, not funny about it. What's interesting about it is um even little things, like if you think about Building an online business and uh, attracting attention and awareness of you, let alone consideration uh, and all that sort of thing the the if you just think about things in terms of like conversion rates, the amount of people who need to know about you sure slims down if you only need a you know a four digit uh, value assigned to them you know or a five digit or uh, assigned to them if you need if you're counting on them buying a $35 ebook or $15, you know, uh, uh, um, white paper or let alone a $97 course or $297 course. Like that's a lot of people that you've got to find, uh, to, to translate that into money that you can sustain a family of a wife and five kids on. So that's a, that's a really interesting observation that you had in mind. A, t- a certain ticket amount, you know, a certain dollar amount assigned to an engagement.
1: And that that lesson actually came, one of the other businesses we haven't chatted about yet is my wife and I actually owned a uh, retail store for a couple of years. That is a horrible idea and I would never encourage anyone to go into retail. It's a bad idea. Was that... Idea. <laughs> Bloom, Bloom, baby and kids. Bloom, baby, and kids. Baby, and kids. Baby, and kids, boutique, you know, strollers, um, uh, cloth diapers, toys, baby clothes, things like that. But what we learned like when your average ticket sale is $35, you need a heck of a lot of customers to pay the rent. I mean, at that point, it is a simple numbers game. You know, X number of people convert, and you need a thousand people a day to walk through your store. And if you're in a small town, that's just not going to happen. You're not going to have half the town go into your store every day. Um, same thing is true of online business um uh, now I mean you can make a great side living you can make 30 40 50 60k a year doing you know courses and ebooks um, but it's gonna be tough to get you know uh you know those you know <laughs> six and certainly seven figures uh, at that level so that's you know kind of one one lesson um, that I've learned And the second thing is, you know, something everybody understands is there's only really two levers in the world that you have to worry about time and money. Like, those are the two big things. Money, for me, like, I would love to, for someone to hire me for those larger ticket things, but the time is the other thing. School calendars are set years in advance. And like, I could have a school principal who has money and loves what I do. But if there are no days in the calendar where their teachers are available, it doesn't matter. And that is one of the big challenges that I still wrestle with today. For me, my biggest two months of the year revenue-wise are June and August. I will probably um, earn probably 40% of my annual revenue in those two months, which is cool and that's And, terrifying. and that's booking. <laughs> That's a,
0: <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Like it's, it's all about what happens, you know, but when August 31st closes, it, there's a lot that's in the rearview mirror at that point from at least from a booking standpoint, the engagements still have to happen, but the booking window is passed, right? No.
1: Well, no, like my busiest time when I'm actually on at client sites, delivering workshops are June and August. So most of my work happens right after the school year ends and right before the school year begins, that's when professional development happens in most most schools. So the challenge is that there's only so many days in the month. Once they're booked, I'm done. I, I, I mean, you're, you're done. Um, it, the calendars are set. And so recognizing that that's where the online courses and the books um, come in place. Because when there are no more PD days, if there's a teacher who does want to learn, but their school can't facilitate me coming, I do have something I can offer. I have a book, I have online courses, um, webinars and things like that. So that's kind of where I'm going in long-term is to supplement those other times of the year.
0: This explains why I see so many trips to Disney World and to Florida and things like that in times of the year when I normally wouldn't think that you're heading there, that person would head there. We
1: do not take vacations in the summer like normal people. Uh, we take them in the dead of winter because when teachers are teaching, that's my, quote unquote, off time. Yeah.
0: Well, those nine months a year then
1: is what uh, you're saying. Uh, that's, that's the challenge. That's my biggest challenge for sure.
0: All right. Well, let's let's talk about some practical issues here. Um, we, we started to hint to it now about the, the product offering, the service offering and how it is expanded over time. And, and you want it to continue. To expand. can And you actually led the show talking about the variety of different ways that income comes. Um, maybe even the percentages, I think, a, a little bit as well. But when you look ahead to where this business needs to go, not just from an um, internal, inward-looking perspective where you want to make money this way and this way and this way and this way, but also you have market factors that could be politically driven, that could be uh, economy driven in really real in very real ways. How do you evaluate uh, how do you evaluate both of those to figure out what you what your next move needs to be to grow your business regardless of the factors that could hamper it yep.
1: Right now, I would say that um, in the last year, I've kind of moved into the optimization um, uh, portion of kind of my personal development. You know, the first five years, I was just trying to figure it out. I was adding offerings. I was testing things. I was seeing what worked and what didn't work. I have a pretty good sense of, like you said, the market factors that are outside of my control, school budget, school calendars. And I've learned that one of the biggest things for me is don't fight against those things. Like it is a waste of time and energy for me to try to launch a course at a, you know, when spring break is happening is just stupid. So anybody who's going into business, you need to really understand the natural business cycles and calendar cycles that impact your industry and make sure like it's hard to make money. You need everything working in your favor and don't put yourself in a position where you're fighting against just natural budgets and calendars and where people are going and what they're doing. So I pay very close attention to that. Right now, I'm primarily focused on taking the times of the year when I know that people are ready to purchase and to engage with me and just being ready to just hammer it as hard as I can. Um and then take those other times, and this gets back to your early question about you know the emotional part of you know worry and is it going to be enough and this and that and saying you know saving the money from those you know rich times so that I can enjoy the down times, not worrying that I don't have business because nobody buys at this time of year, and using that time to write, and reflect, and create and plan uh, for the next buying cycle.
0: So in in some ways, it's like your business has some major. Uh, Pivot moments during the course of a calendar year that you've got to capitalize on because when the window is gone, it's gone for months. It's not like other people who feel like, yeah, their fiscal year is this such and such a year, and but they, they might be able to find some money, uh, you know, an entrepreneur that's selling to businesses or something like that. You're selling to organizations that have very strict time windows that you have to take advantage of, and that's a that's a risk or a challenge that you have. But it seems like also. Looking at it from the outside, that you also have built-in pause moments in your uh, in your course of your year, where you can go heads down and maybe create this type of content that is your next sellable asset, your online course, uh, whatever those other assets are that that kind of set up the next stage of your business. Is that how you view it, or not quite yet? Nope,
1: absolutely. And that's something that in the last three years I've become to recognize. So for me, you know, um, in the holidays, so pretty much Thanksgiving through the first of the year. Nothing happens. Teachers are trying to get to Christmas break; like everybody's kind of shutting down, so it's that's just not a good sales time. Spring break, same thing. Like, don't waste your time. And so, I do a lot of my writing, blogging, podcasting. Uh, try to create as much content in those times, and then release it during the busier times.
0: Yeah, yeah. What is the, the the What is the state of the product offering today? What's missing from it when you look at the models of other online entrepreneurs? not even so much the educational market, what do you see as um, products or offerings or services that would round out your suite of services even more? Are there models that you look at, like you see how certain people build their businesses that aren't in the education market you think, Ooh, that's kind of how I need to structure things.
1: Yeah. There's one piece that I would really like to add. Um, I've yet to figure out exactly how to do it. And that is, um, you know, reoccurring revenue, you know, like a membership of some sort. A good buddy of mine is an insurance um, guy and I'm so jealous of him because he like sells an insurance policy and then he gets paid every year until you cancel. Like it's brilliant. For me, I have to sell the course, sell the book, sell the consulting. I get a little bit of repeat business, but because I'm teaching a very specific thing, like once I've taught you that thing, you don't need me anymore. Like I, I do try to work myself out of a job, so I don't have a lot of repeat business in that sense. I would love to do some kind of a membership site or something where I could work with a group of teachers on an annual basis, but. It also freaks me out. Um, you know, I was listening to Pat Flynn's podcast, and he had a membership site he tried to do. And Pat Flynn, who is one of the top, you know, you know, web-based business guys out there, he killed it. He's like, "It's way too much work. I can't provide enough value to justify the annual cost." He killed it. So it's like, man, if he can't figure it out, I'm gonna have to really think about this before I uh, I jump in.
0: Well the, I think the lesson learned there too is that no matter how many people that are uh, launching courses to teach people how to launch courses and um, and other digital products that teach people how to uh, create digital products, despite that, uh, that's, that's still a rel- relatively recent phenomenon and there's not a blueprint that everybody can follow and be certain that it will work for their, not just their industry because we all think every one of our industries are, are unique, but um, something that is sure to work in your market, uh, with your skill sets, with your available time and resources and whether you've delegated some of it or not. Um, there's just those realities. There's no, there's no real blueprint for some of this stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's tricky. And, uh, I mean, I'm tr- always learning and growing. Um, I'm a teacher. I, I mean, I love to teach people things. That's, that's my passion. Um, you know, the, the, business, uh, strategy side of things, you know, the, the web-based entrepreneur kind of stuff is something I'm still learning trying to, trying to figure out. So s- since
0: you're coming from that world, you're not coming from a guy who was an entrepreneur to begin with, or, um, was a sales and marketing person and just applied their, uh, their skill sets to a new business that they started up on the side. And then it turned into something bigger than them, than themselves. And all of that wonderful story that we tell so often on this show. Uh, Since that's not your story, and you really embrace the idea of a company of one uh, mindset, the Paul Jarvis mindset, and uh, Paul's been on the show, as you know, and um, since that's the case, do you have specific people, you mentioned Pat Flynn, do you have specific people that are either those you model things after or keep an eye on how they do things, not just what they say, but what they actually do? And do you have like your own little mastermind or peer group of people that you you bounce ideas off of so you can know that you're going down a path that's at least been walked down before. Just for your business purposes.
1: Yeah, I have a couple of friends who um, are not who who are entrepreneurs, but are nothing like what I do, uh, which is which is interesting. So a lot of guys in the finance uh, industry um, who, and uh, insurance, and so it's always interesting to hear the challenges that they face, and just realize that everybody has a different problem. Uh, you, you know, it's, there's no perfect uh, business or industry uh, to deal with. Uh, so some of that, i uh, certainly keep my eye on all the big names. You know, I kind of rotate through. I mean, look, when you really get down to it, everybody has kind of their, their big message. You know, I did Pat Flynn for a while and you know, he likes affiliate marketing. You listen to a few episodes, you, you kind of get it. You know, Gary V. you know, the guy is insane. He's very entertaining, but he really only has three things that he says. So, you know, he, he spins it and does a marvelous job of communicating the same thing in a thousand ways. Uh, Wait a minute. He he produces content every single day, and you're
0: saying he only has three things that he rotates and says? Pretty much.
1: Pretty much. Yeah. Hustle, you know, stop complaining, uh, empathy, you know. Yeah, hey, man, I got, right, I got two right. pair of his shoes, for goodness sakes. I mean, uh, I'm, a, oh my I'm, a, I'm a fan. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, freelance to founder, of course. I listen to you and, uh, and check it out. So, um, I, I mean, I listen, kind of pay attention, uh, pick up things here and there. There are um, the edupreneur. It's kind of a, it's a, a growing oh, term. I there like are that. a few. Yes. Um, I'll yeah. keep my eye on a few of them um, just to kind of see what they're doing. I mean, we're all kind of similar in you know, what we offer, um, but uh, always keep your eye on your competition. Yep. If I were to ask your wife,
0: Let's say I I see her at one of these events that you finally decide to bring her to, You know that we've been to. Um, There's no kids. She's in.
1: She'd love to come.
0: (laughs) And I corner her to ask her about her take on the business um, when you first got started. Nellie is your wife, right? Um, And I ask her about her take on the business when you first got it started and how it has evolved to where it is today. What would she tell me about it?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um I think she's very proud. Um she actually is uh has a, a, quite an entrepreneurial streak as well. Um you know, being an entrepreneur is something you don't decide that you are an entrepreneur. You either are or you aren't. Like if you are think- like if you are googling how do I become an entrepreneur or how do I start a business? you're not an entrepreneur. I'm sorry. I don't want to defend anybody, but like people who want to do this like you they cannot help themselves. When Nelly and I go to a restaurant or go to a business, we are ruthless in critiquing like man, that was they've lost a huge opportunity. Like they could have set a display up right there and I would have bought something. Like their marketing is is horrible. I can't believe they they should hire us to run this business. We would do a much better job. I mean, it's just Built in. And so it is fortunate to have a spouse like that. I could not do it without her support. And I mean, it is a risk. I don't think it would be very easy if um, you had a spouse that was very risk adverse or concerned about that. I'm fortunate in that my wife... um, embraces it with me. And, you know, we take turns freaking out. It's like, okay, today's your turn. And I'll say, it's going to be okay. We're going to be fine. And tomorrow will be my turn. And she'll say, it's okay. You've been through this before. It's going to be okay. You know, one client isn't going to be the end of the world. So, uh, um, it's an adventure. I mean, it's, it's, uh, strengthened our marriage and, uh, we hope our kids see this and I would love for them to be, uh, entrepreneurs as well.
0: Well, speaking of which, and we can start to hit the the, the landing strip of this episode is in sight here. Uh, that's that's a unique one, and I asked um, a past entrepreneur about this, about how their view of the path one should take for their career, uh, how that has evolved for them. You know, we I had a person on, uh, Susie Bullock and her and her husband Todd, and they were talking about uh, their notion of the career path that one takes. What is a career path? You go to school. You go to college, you get a degree, you get a job, and and then maybe doors open, but that's the path you generally follow. And they said that their entire notion that they intend to teach their kids consciously about what a career path, how that works, even before you get to the career stage, has completely changed as an entrepreneur versus when they were, you know, what they would have told you right out of college. Is that, I don't want to put words nope, in your mouth, but I is would, that the case with I you too? I
1: completely agree. I mean, I am an educator. I believe in education. Um, but I am definitely rethinking what I will quote unquote require my kids to do. I don't think that I'm, I'm still formulating this, but I don't think that rec- uh, college is a required option for my kids. Um, I think it's a good option and a valid one, but uh, not as essential as it may have been, you know, when you and I were uh, were growing up i'm giving my kids as much opportunity as I can uh my son uh he started a uh, magic wand business um Uh, at our local farmer's market. He was selling magic wands. If yours was broken or ineffective, he was- uh, That is incredible. A replacement uh, available for you. So uh, So, by the way, selling
0: magic wands is one thing. (laughs) Selling them if yours is currently ineffective is a brilliant and clever and even cute marketing angle.
1: Dad may have helped a little bit, but- uh... (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful.
0: Well, John, what does the future hold? If we could be the first ones to know- how the next 12 months of Sowash Ventures is going to evolve. How would you describe that? What's What should we expect to see with how you, how you develop the business over the next year that is different from what you've done in the past? Yeah.
1: So this year um, I'm excited. So I have a selection of online courses that I have already delivered. And so I'm excited to Focus primarily on the launch of those courses rather than the actual content development of them, which doing both is insane. Um, and so, I'm I'm hoping for a strong. I've got about five courses I plan to launch in the next twelve months between now and next uh, July. Um, Holy smokes! And uh, I'm doing a, a rewrite on my book, uh, the Chromebook Classroom. So that will, if it all goes well, that'll probably be in print about this time next year. Um, so a lot of rewriting and, uh, again, I'm building in courses and, you know, a much better launch strategy into that, uh, second edition than the first time around.
0: So that's a heck of a lot—five uh, courses and a new book over just the next twelve months—and you are a solopreneur, one-man business, mean, correct? Yeah,
1: I have a little bit of help. I have an event coordinator who does some event logistics for me. Certainly, designer, editor—you know, web designer—who you know does uh, course stuff um, for me. But uh, all the course, um, all the writing and content is uh, is me.
0: John, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an awesome conversation, not just about uh, how you've balanced it all uh, with the family, but uh, as much as what you've done, like what you, how you, how you viewed the business, have learned to operate in a really unique market and thrive uh, despite that unique, and you could even argue cash-strapped, challenging market. Absolutely, well done. Well,
1: thank you very much, Brian. It's been great. And uh, you know, if anybody's out there and has uh, inspiration or aspiration to you know try something new. Just try it. Um, I mean, I think there's so much opportunity out there to, you know, maybe it's not your full time thing. You know, maybe you're not going to make six figures, but I mean, hey, I'd take an extra forty, fifty, sixty thousand 40, 50, 60,000 a year for, you know, sharing what I know and teaching someone uh, how to develop uh, a new skill. So that's my advice go for it. All right. That was
0: Mr. John Sowash, founder of G Educator. And the Chromebook guy when it comes to teachers, classrooms, school districts, and the deployment of those Chromebooks into those school districts. Coming up next week, I bring you Shane Snow, founder of Contently. For some, content is all about blog posts. It begins and ends with blog posts. For others who have a more sophisticated perspective, it can mean big money. That's where we're going to take you with Shane's story. All right, thank you to my co-producer, Preston Lee, founder of Milo and admin of the Milo Mastermind Community on Facebook, as well as our incredible assistant, Bilal Ibrar for helping put this episode together and to our friends with the Podglomerate Network. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. Catch me at Brandon Hull on Twitter if you feel so inclined and feel free to drop your rating and review on whichever podcast platform you prefer. We'll catch you next week on Freelance to Founder.